Oh, you should have got that. There was two. There was two on the website tonight. Yeah. Yeah, there's there was two on the Yeah, there should have been there should have just been a text document, and then there should have been one that had some pictures on it. So I I've, I should have thought to put them all on one document, but I didn't. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, we're going to have to get started here. We're in our time zone. Getting a little bit of feedback here, Frank. A little ringing. Uh, yeah, I think that's better. Let me get my remote control here. Well, let's pray and uh, we'll get started on our lesson tonight. Lord, we give you thanks for your goodness to us. Thank you for this time that we have together. Uh, Lord, And as we meet, we think of our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine who uh, are not meeting, but are just, uh, many of them are just scattered different places uh, where they're seeking shelter and safety. Lord, uh, help them have boldness in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever they're at. Thank you again for your word and the fact that we have copies and we can read it. Help us to uh, follow what it says in Christ's name. Amen. So the first thing I want to do here this evening is uh, I gave you this handout here. For those who are listening on uh, YouTube or on our audio recording, if you go to the website and you look under today's date, so this is March 10th, you'll find uh, two sets of notes and um, one of those will be this document here that's got some images on it and some uh, text. And I, and I want us to see some of this stuff this everything in this document here is all from assyrian documents none of it's in the from the bible i shouldn't say none of it's in the bible some of it is in the bible but this is from assyrian documents and i just want us to notice some of the connections between what the assyrians recorded and what we have in our bible and um, on this picture right here, which is not in your uh, handout, so this picture here is what their writing looked like. So this is, this is how they wrote. And you, you can't hardly tell. Let me walk around another side. Um, but this here would be a letter or a, it's a symbol. This is a separate symbol, separate symbol, separate symbol, separate symbol. And they all look the same, but they're, but they're not. They're different and depending on what era of the language you're talking about, those symbols stand for Syllables, what we would call syllables. So the Assyrian language comes from the Akkadian language, transforms into the Babylonian language. Uh, they all are connected there, and they are a um, syllable-based writing system. Syllabographic is the fancy word. Syllaba, syllable, syllabographic. It's not hieroglyphics like Egyptians. Um, so it's, it's a pretty unique thing, 
pretty unique thing. I spent uh, one semester studying uh, some of this, and um, that was that was interesting because it's there's no connection to anything. <laughs> with Greek, you can make some connections with the forms of some of the letters in Hebrew. You can make connections with sounds, but in Assyrian, Akkadian, those. You don't, you don't have that. So let's look at this real quick. So uh, Tiglath-Pileser, you can see he's sporting a pretty impressive beard there in that first image. So that's a carved relief in stone. And um, so that's a picture of him. He's got, he's got some a pretty impressive mullet going on there in the back too. And uh, this is another, the, the image right below that is uh, another image that comes from the reliefs associated with him. And you can see some of the writing at the very bottom of that relief, and that's telling you what's going on in the picture. Okay, now the text below that has nothing to do with the images. Okay, the text below that is just going to come from uh, Assyrian documents. So uh, let me read through these, and I'm going to, uh, in the bold, print that you have there, I, I put that in there. So that's to highlight certain things I want you to pay attention to. And I'll make a, a, just a brief comments along the way. It begins, I installed Itabili as the warden of marches on the border of Musur and all the countries which now where you see those dots, that means that something's there, but they can't read it. Maybe it's been destroyed. Maybe it's just too faint for them to read, but that's what the three dots mean. When you see the brackets, you see it says, I received, and it's in brackets there. That means it's sort of been reconstructed from the context. They have bits and pieces where they can, they're pretty sure they know what those words are. And so they, they put them in brackets to let you know that they've done a little bit of work beyond just reading it. So it says, I received the tribute of Keshtashpi of Kamegan. Uh, and then you see in, in uh, the parentheses there, that's been added. The parentheses have been added to help with our English translation. Okay. So it goes on to say, Uric of uh, K is probably how you say that. Uh, Sibitibel of Biblos and uh, Enil of Hamath. Now, Hamath, we've mentioned that city before. Okay, that's a city that's mentioned in the Bible. Uh, Panum, uh, Panamnu of Samal, Tarhulara of Gumgum, nice name, Sulumal of Militin, and so on and so forth. Then get down to the next bold word there. It says Arvid, so that's a city we know about. Then it says Bit Ammon, so that's the house of Ammon. Bit Ammon, house of Ammon. So in Hebrew, that would be Beth Ammon, like Bethlehem. So in, in this language, it's Bit, it's a house. Then we see also in uh, bold letters there, Moab. We know about that. And then it goes on after Moab and it says, Mitiniti of Ashkelon. Now what kind of city, who's, who's the occupants of Ashkelon? Philistines, that's a Philistine city. Then look at the next name, Jehoahaz. Now, we know who that is, and it tells us there of Judah. And so this is in the um, parentheses there. That's how they spell it. That's how it's spelled in the Assyrian language. And then you go on, it's, you see the Edom is mentioned there, and Gaza is mentioned there also. And so this pretty much, these, these names, these place names that we see here, this is mentioned all the way back with Tiglath-Pileser, um, when you see these place names, that tells you he's had um, work that he did, work that he did, whatever that might be. He was in the area of everything we know as Israel today. 
So all the way down to Ammon, you know, that's, that's a lot of territory that he covered. And he's talking about all these people gave him tribute. Now, if you flip over to page two, we have some more texts from the inscriptions. In the first paragraph there, it says, I received tribute from Kushtashpi of Kemajin. Then look at the, what it says in the bold there. Rezan of Damascus. Menahem of Samaria. Now, we've already been through those particular people. But, but you see, he, their names are mentioned in the Assyrian text. So these are not just people who are found in the Bible. They're found in the writings of the people who had inner workings with them, um, whether it's they came to conquer them or whatever. In this case, they came to conquer them, but um, they, they had connection to these people and they recorded these names in their writings. And he goes on to talk about the tribute that these people uh, gave. And you can read that whole list of tribute on your own. If you go down to the next paragraph that starts out the town and whatever the name of that is right there. In that paragraph, you see the bold there. It mentions Israel, bit huumria, huumria. That means house of Omri, house of Omri. So this is being written in the time of the Omri dynasty. So that's why they call Israel the house of Omri, because that's, that's who the founder of the dynasty was. Go down to the last paragraph and it says, as to Hano of Gaza. So here's Gaza mentioned again, Philistine city. Then you drop down to about the middle of that and you see the name Menahem again. And look, look what it says. As for Menahem, I overwhelmed him like a snowstorm and he fled like a bird alone and bowed to my feet. I returned him to his place and imposed tribute upon him to wit, gold, silver, linen garments with multicolored trimmings, uh, great something, something I received from him. And um, when you go back, and I would, I would encourage you to read through these on your own, but these tributes, it's like a, it's like a cut and paste job with these tributes. They mention all the same things over and over again. But pick up where I left off there with the word Israel. Israel, so this is Omri land, or the house of Omri, literally it's the house of Omri. All its inhabitants and their possessions, I led to Assyria. I overthrew their king Pekah, another biblical name. And I placed Hosea as king over them. Now, when we talked about Hosea, Hosea comes, he comes in after um, Pekah. And he, he takes the throne by conspiracy. And so this text that we have here in front of us on this sheet, it fills in some of the blanks. Because all that happened when Tiglath-Pileser was coming, invading the land. And so Hosea there is a ally, vassal to Tiglath-Pileser. And it talks about the tribute, tribute money there. Let's go to page three. This is Shalmaneser V. You see that image there. It's Shalmaneser V is on the left with his hand pointed down. And it's Sargon II on the right. So the father and son. And so, again, they, you know, these, all these guys kind of look the same, but there's differences that uh, if you live for this stuff, you know the differences between how these guys are carved. I don't. Um, we don't have any inscriptions, or I don't have any inscriptions from Salmaneser the fifth. So let's go to page four. Page four, and this is Sargon the second. Sargon the second, and he begins to reign in 722. 722, of course, is the year that Israel was taken captive by Assyria. 
And uh, notice, notice right at the beginning of the uh, paragraph, next, right next to the image there, it says, property of Sargon, etc., king of Assyria, etc. They would have these big, long introductory statements, you know. Sargon, the great and wonderful, benevolent, omnipotent, you know, all this stuff. They would put all that stuff, so they just shortened it up here. Conqueror of Samaria and the entire country of Israel, house of Omri, who despoiled Ashdod, the Philistine city. Now, let me make a comment about here. Sargon here is taking credit for conquering Israel. But almost everybody agrees that it was Shalmaneser V who actually conquered Israel and not Sargon. Sargon's just taking credit for what his predecessor did. And if you would read these uh, inscriptions in detail, you see that he does that quite a bit. He takes credit for something somebody else did. Okay, so uh, go down to the second paragraph. It says, at the beginning of my royal rule, I, something, the town of the Samaritans, besieged, conquered, and then there's two lines that are totally uh, destroyed there that they don't have. For God, who let me achieve this, my triumph, I led away prisoners, and he gives the number, 27,290 inhabitants of it, and equipped from them... Uh, equipped from among them soldiers to man 50 chariots for my royal corps. And so I, I don't think the 27,000 plus here is all of the inhabitants of Israel. I think it's probably the inhabitants of Samaria that he took. I think that's what it's probably referring to here. And he goes on to say, uh, the town I rebuilt better than it was before and settled therein people from countries which I myself had conquered. So that comes from 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 24, or it's connected, it doesn't come from it. It's connected to it where we have the countries listed in the Bible of where the, the people who were resettled, uh, how they come in. So, but I just point out here, he says that the people that he used to resettle the land, they come from the countries that uh, he conquered. Well, he just became king. He hasn't conquered a bunch of other places uh, that haven't already been conquered, okay? So you see he's taking credit for things he didn't do. Look at the final paragraph there, the one below the image. It says, I besieged and conquered Samaria, led away as booty 27,290 inhabitants of it. And then it, it, basically he says the same thing again. But you'll notice in this when he mentions Egypt now here, he mentions Arabia um, and the uh, uh, Sabians at the very end. You see that at the last line of that inscription, it says the, Asabian, the uh, Sabians. Now, where have you heard that word in the Bible before? What book? Isn't it in the book of Job? I think so. I think so. It's about raiders. These uh, Sabian raiders, the ones who came and uh, took his cattle, his livestock. Uh, let's go to the next page, page five here. And we're getting into where we're at today with Sennacherib. And you can see in the scripture references for Sennacherib there at the top of the page, he's mentioned quite a bit. He plays a major role in the history of, of uh, Judah here. The image you see there is, is they call it the Sennacherib prism. And the writing, you can't really see the writing real well. You can kind of tell something's there. But this records for us the annals of Sennacherib. So it's like his memoirs. He wrote it. It's autobiographical. He probably couldn't write, but, you know, he had somebody write it for him to make him look good. You know, anytime you're writing for the king, you always make sure the king looks good in the end. Okay, it's, it's a good life choice. So notice in the uh, first paragraph here, there's a couple typos here. It says, in my third campaign, I marched against Haiti. He did not march against Haiti. 
<laughs> he marched against Hati, H-A-T-T-I. My spell check doesn't recognize Hati, and it changed it to Haiti automatic, <laughs> automatically. And um, so Hadi, that is going to be Western Syria and Lebanon area and starting to encroach down into Israel. That's that land there. And you see it, it mentions here, King of Sidon. So Luli, King of Sidon is mentioned here. Now notice, notice how he describes himself. So in my third campaign, I marched against Hadi, Luli, King of Sidon, whom the terror-inspiring glamour of my lordship had overwhelmed. <laughs> so he's got a pretty high view of him, himself and his abilities, but that's pretty typical there. Notice, too, in bold there is the um, word Asher. That's the god of the Assyrians. There's a city in Assyria named after this god. So when he says, Asher, my lord, he does that several times. He's not talking about a king over him. He's talking about their God. This is their chief God. You'll see in the next paragraph, it mentions the city of Ashkelon. Again, that's a, a Philistine city. That means he's gotten as far as the Philistine territory. That's how far he's been able to travel. travel. Look at the last paragraph that I have here on this page. And uh, this is... This is the narrative about the things that are going to lead up to Sennacherib coming up against Judah. And it records for us here some of Hezekiah's rebellious attitude towards the Assyrians. So you, if you look at where the bold is, the first line that has bold letters in it, if you look up to the line just above that where it says and the common people of Ekron who had thrown it's not pads it's paddy p-a-d-i who had thrown paddy their king so uh, paddy was the king of Ekron they the residents of Ekron threw him into fetters because he was loyal to his uh, solemn oath sworn by the god Asher so Ekron did not want to give in to the Assyrians, but their king did, and their king was going to, but they revolted and um, put him in prison. And it says, and had handed him over to Hezekiah the Jew. And so you can see how Hezekiah is spelt there, H-A-Z-A-Q-I-I-A-U. I mean, that's what the, the symbols work out to be. Um, then, then for uh, uh, the Jews, really, it's more like something related to Judah. You see uh, something like Yahudai. Yahudai is how they would, would say it. And he, Hezekiah, held him in prison unlawfully. So... Uh, this is a little bit of Hezekiah's rebellious attitude to, to the Assyrians. And notice at the very end, it also mentions Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Your Salimu. Your Salimu. Now, if you turn over to page six, this is our last page here. But it says that uh, at, the, at the top of the page, it tells us, as to Hezekiah the Jew... He did not submit to my yoke. Okay, didn't submit to my yoke. And, it, and uh, this is found in 18.7. We're going to see it tonight, chapter 18, verse 7. And uh, he did that for about a decade. He was rebellious for about a decade. Then it says, I laid siege to 46 of his strong cities. That's found in chapter 18, verse 13 of 2 Kings. And then he goes on to talk about what he did to conquer these cities. It says he drove out of them 200,150 people. And then notice there in the middle of that paragraph, the bold, it says himself, that's Hezekiah, 
I made a prisoner in Jerusalem, his royal residence, like a bird in a cage. Now, he didn't actually make him a prisoner, but he trapped him in Jerusalem. You know, he, he couldn't get out and move around. He was stuck in, in Jerusalem. And finally, you see at the very end, it says that uh, Sennacherib made Hezekiah pay 30 talents of gold and 800 talents of silver. Now, there's a difference in the Hebrew text of 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 14, that says 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. And so that's one of those, I wrote like a 10-page paper on trying to figure out who is probably the correct one there as far as the amount that is recorded. Um, and uh, if I could ever remember my conclusion <laughs> or find my paper, I would, I would tell you. But uh, it took me quite a bit because I had to translate the whole section that records this here from that. Um, so that took quite a bit of time. Um, and then you look, look at the Hebrew, look if there's any manuscript differences and things like that. So anyway, uh, so I mean, that's, that's, so this is a real brief just fly through. Um, so I would encourage you to take that back and read through it a couple times and see if there's other connections you can see to what the Bible says about this same time period. And uh, I think you'll find it interesting. And, and what is really evident to us is that the record of the Bible is not some mystical kind of fairy tale record, but that the people that are recorded there are actually real people. I mean, it didn't say anything about King Omri but it talked about the house of Omri. So what's that mean? Omri was a real guy. He was a real guy. That also means the house of Omri was a real dynasty in Israel. So that means Ahab was a real guy. Okay? And so um, we don't need that extra stuff to know that the Bible is true, but... It's the, difference. it's the difference in reading your Bible in black and white and reading it with a color TV set. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a big difference. You know, when, when you read it and you understand some of the other things that were happening as recorded in some other ancient documents, it really puts the, your TV into high definition. You can really get a real solid picture in your mind everything that's going on around. So let's look at Hezekiah here. So we're in chapter 18. Chapter 18, Hezekiah of Judah. He's going to be the 13th ruler of Judah. So this is the other set of notes you should have gotten. And we're, and, uh, we're only going to get through Hezekiah this evening. We're going to move pretty quickly because he covers two, uh, three chapters. Three chapters. And so there's your general information about him. He ruled from 716 to 687. 716 to 687, total of 29 years. So pretty long rule, almost 30 years. Pretty long rule. And, and um, he almost got that cut in half. Now that was almost cut in half. Because remember, he got real sick right in the middle. And uh, so we'll look at that. So 29 years, and I think, I, didn't I leave you the, the scripture references in your notes so you don't have, I didn't? Oh, well, too bad for me. So if, yeah, if it's 2 Kings 18 through 20, don't write the verses down. Then 2 Chronicles 29 through 32. That's the shorthand. 2 Chronicles 29 through 32, those chapters. We're not going to look at those tonight. That's just too much. 2 Kings 18 through 20. 
I usually try to leave those on there. Okay, do you got all that copy down? So let's, uh, let's now look at some specific points here about Hezekiah. So his basic descriptions found in verses 1 and 2 says, Now it came about in the third year of Hosea, the son of Allah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was my father, the daughter of Zechariah. <laughs> it's, it's a weird name for your mom, Abi or Avi. <laughs> my father. It, it probably actually is just a shortened name for God's my father or Yahweh's my father or something like that. It's, it's probably what it actually refers to. That's just the shortened one. But Av or Ab is father and E at the end is my. It means my. So Abi or Avi my father. So he's the 13th ruler. His name means the Lord is strength or the Lord is my strength, something like that. The Lord is strength or the Lord is my strength. He becomes king in the third year of Hosea, who remember Hosea will be the last king of Israel. His father is Ahaz, so that's not a mark in his favor. He becomes king when he's 25 years old. He's going to reign 29 years. And we already talked about his mom. Now let's look at his spiritual condition in verses 3 through 6. Notice in verse 3, immediately it says, He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. So, up to this point, when a lot of times when we see one of these kings of Judah where they're a good king and it says they did right in the sight of the Lord, it, it'll say they did right in the sight of the Lord, but they didn't remove the high places. They did right in the sight of the Lord, but not like David did. Here, Hezekiah, is his spiritual condition is connected to David's, just like David. So he did right in the sight of the Lord. Just like he, uh, David, his father did. And so let's look at some other things that describe his spiritual condition. Verse 4, uh, verse 4 here, it says, He removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars, that's the mitzvah oath, and, the, and cut down the Ashtoreth. He also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. So if you can remember Nehushtan, you can remember a Hebrew word. It's a Hebrew word that just means a bronze thing bronze thing. Actually, very interesting. The word in Hebrew for bronze and the word for serpent have the same three basic letters. And so there's a connection. I wonder where that connection came from. The serpent in the wilderness. So this serpent's been around, this bronze serpent's been around for a long time and they used it for uh, false worship. So uh, that kind of lets us know there's an affinity for the Jews, and I would just say men in particular, that they want to worship what they can see. They want to worship what they can see. Men do not like the idea of worshiping something or someone that they cannot see. So this was a problem with Israel all the way back in Exodus with the golden calf. They wanted to worship something they could see. We also see here that this bronze serpent was a good thing when it was originally made, right? It was a good thing. You know, it was a way for God to um, reconcile the people to himself. Remember, they were disobedient. 
they were causing trouble and God sent the snakes in among them and they were biting them. And if they wanted to live, they had to look at the serpent that Moses made, this bronze uh, serpent. So it was good, but here they turn it into something wicked. And so we, we see Hezekiah did what none of the other kings of Judah were able to do. And that is he tore down the high places. And a further description is found in verse 5 where it says, He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. Now notice what it says in the rest of the verse. So that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. So think about that. So when it comes to the kings of Judah, as far as their walk with the Lord, as far as them being a good and godly king, Hezekiah is at the top. Now, I think that excludes David. Because remember, David is, when it comes to kings, David is the gold standard, right? He's the standard by which everybody is judged. You, can't, you, can, never, you can never be better than the standard, okay? And so all the kings, and I think it's talking about the kings of the divided kingdom particularly. So all the kings of the divided kingdom, Hezekiah is the best, most godly king of uh, Judah. Uh, in verse 6, it gives us a further description of his spiritual condition. It says, for he clung to the Lord. This word for clung is the same word that's used in Genesis 2.24, where a husband is joined to his wife and they become one flesh. So that word joined is the same word as the word clung here. So it says, for he clung to the Lord, he did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. So these two ideas, especially in verse 5 of trusted and in verse 6 of clung, these are written in a way that indicate to us that these two things describe his entire life. This is, this is the kind of person uh, that he was. This was his, his godly character. Now, in verses 7 and 8, in verses 7 and 8, we see the characterization of his reign. The characterization of his reign. It says, and the Lord was with him. Break. Wherever he, that is Hezekiah, went, he prospered. And he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. So this characterizes his reign, that the Lord was with him and he prospered. So those are two different things, but certainly they're connected. Certainly we see that following the Lord, especially with the kings of Israel, kings of Judah, following the Lord equals blessing, not following the Lord equals cursing. So the Lord blessed him and he prospered. And it's important to note that here he rebelled against the king of Assyria. So this is going to be Shalmaneser number five that he started his rebellion against. And we read, we read about that in those texts already, in those Assyrian texts. We read about that, that he would not submit to the yoke. He would not bow to the yoke of the Assyrians. So that, that fits here. Notice in verse 8 it says, He defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from Watchtower to Fortified City. So he was able to take even the strongholds in the Philistine land. And, um, and you read that in relation to the writings that we have in this, these inscriptions that we talked about earlier. And you see that these Assyrians were all over those Philistine cities. Okay, so in your own mind, you can draw a connection. The Philistines are conquered by the Assyrians, but they're also conquered by Hezekiah. So when the Assyrians come in, Judah is occupying those Philistine cities. And so when the Assyrians start to move in and invade Judah, they start uh, in many cases, by taking those Philistine cities first. 
Uh, but you see how his reign is characterized. So he, he's prospers, he's successful in, in battle, and the Lord is with him. Now, in verses 9 through 12, we see a, a, um, a restatement of Israel's defeat by Assyria. Not, Ju- not Judah's defeat. This, so 9 through 12 is not talking about Judah, it's talking about Israel. But it gives us some extra information that we didn't have before. It says in verse 9, it gives us the time of, of the defeat. It says, in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. So uh, Hezekiah is going to be roughly 29 years old when, when Israel falls, when the city of Samaria falls. Um, verse 10, at the end of three years, they captured it in the sixth year of Hezekiah, which was the ninth year of Hosea, king of Israel, Samaria was captured. So by the time he turns 31, Samaria is captured. Israel is no longer a nation. In verse 11, we see the fate of Israel. It says, then the king of Assyria carried Israel away into exile to Assyria and put them in um, Hala and on the Haber, the river of Gozan. We said last time that the city is probably Gozan and the name of the river is probably uh, Habor and in the cities of the Medes. And then in verse 12, it gives us the reason. Because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant, even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. So the covenant there is the Mosaic covenant. It's the law. They transgressed it. They broke it. They didn't stay within the boundaries that the law set for them. Last phrase of verse 12, they would neither listen nor do. They would neither listen or do. I think that's a very interesting way to talk about their disobedience. Uh, The implication being that you could listen but not do. But in order to do, you have to listen. The New Testament connection to this, I think, is James chapter 1, verse 22. Don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers also. So anyway, very interesting connection. By the way, James writing to the early church, all Jews, do you think they would have made the connection I just made? Probably so, probably so. Hearers, they would neither hear nor do. All right, let's keep moving on. Verses 13 through 16. Verses 13 through 16, we have the invasion by Assyria. Now, this is the invasion of Judah, okay? So this is the invasion of Judah by Assyria. So verses 13 through 16. Uh, The first thing we would note right away is the time. It says, now in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib... So so a new Assyrian king, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. So this is in the 14th year of Hezekiah. Look at verse 9 real quick. Back up to verse 9. The siege, the siege of Samaria started in the fourth year of Hezekiah. So by the time we get to verse 13, 10 years have gone by, a whole decade has gone by. And that's why I think that entire time Hezekiah has been rebellious towards the Assyrians. He's had a rebellious attitude towards the Assyrians all the time. So Sennacherib is going to rule from 705 to 681. From 705 to 681. And we see here that Sennacherib came up against and took the fortified cities. At this time, in verse 13, he's in Lachish. 
So Lachish is southwest of Jerusalem, about 35 miles away. In verse 14, we see that Hezekiah has this rebellious stance, and then he goes back on it. He says, whoa, maybe I've Maybe I've been wrong here. So look what it says. Then Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish. So that's where Sennacherib is at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose, I will bear. So he, he becomes a little bit more cooperative, Hezekiah does, at this point. And uh, we see next that Sennacherib imposes a tribute of 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. That's different than what we read in the inscriptions. It says, so the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. Verse 15. Hezekiah gave him all the silver which was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house. Uh, gave him all the silver. Everything. Everything. Now, verse 16, we see that in order for Hezekiah to get enough gold, he had to take, he had the doors of the temple and the door frame encased in gold. And he had to cut it all off to get enough get enough gold to give to Sennacherib. So this is going to be about 11 tons of silver and a ton of gold. So we're not talking about something you would just keep lying around. You know, it's quite a bit of uh, metal, heavy metal at that. Furthermore, this is probably just an initial down payment on what will be an annual tribute. Now, I don't think the annual tribute would be this much. But kings didn't say, just pay me once. They said, give me money and give me money every year. So this was probably setting up the stage for an annual type of tribute payment. Um, and so Hezekiah has to raid the house of the Lord and the treasuries to get this money. Uh, notice in verse 17, now we're going to get into 17 down to 27, there's a negotiation that, that starts to take place between Sennacherib and Hezekiah. It says, Then the king of Assyria sent Tartan and Rabsarish, Rabsarish, Ish, Ris, something like that, um, and Rabshakeh, Rabshakeh is going to be the spokesman from Lachish to King Hezekiah with a large army to Jerusalem. Now, these officials that are mentioned here, these Assyrian officials, we're not sure if they're Assyrian, you know, ethnically Assyrian, or if they might be people that um, the Assyrians had conquered along the way. And what the Assyrians would do is they would take people that they conquered and incorporate them into their army. Okay, so it's possible. And one of the reasons I think that it kind of points in that direction is because these guys, or at least Rabshakeh, knew Hebrew. How in the world did he know Hebrew if he was an Assyrian? So it's something to think about. So they show up to Jerusalem with this large army. It says, and they went up and came to Jerusalem. And when they, when they went up, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway of the Fuller's Field. Now, we've heard that place mentioned before. Can you remember? Yes. Remember, King Ahaz is being threatened by the Assyrians, not this particular king. And he goes out to secure the water sources. And so he goes to this very spot, and this is where Isaiah meets him. And this is where Isaiah tells him, don't worry about these people. Don't, well, actually, it, was, it wasn't the Assyrians. It was, uh, help me out here, Israel and uh, Syria or Damascus. So Pekka and Rezin. There you go. Um, so he, he's securing his water sources. Now, notice here, 
who's standing, who's standing at the water source for the city? The Assyrians. Now, what's that tell us? Water source is compromised. Now, what did Hezekiah do? We don't see it in our text. What did he do? Dug a tunnel, right? So anybody who's been to Israel, almost every time you go, you got to look at Hezekiah's tunnel, right? And crawl through it or walk through it or whatever it might be. Why did he do that? Right here. The Assyrians had already compromised the water source for Jerusalem. That's why they're able to stand there. They got their army. So let's keep going. Um, Verse 18, when they called to the king, Eliakim, son of uh, Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to them. Then Rabshakeh said to them, say now to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria. Now notice, notice here uh, the questions that are going to be brought up with this deal. Uh, they're trying to strike a deal. The Assyrians want to strike a deal. The Assyrians don't want to fight. They want them to surrender. They want them to give up. So he's going to try to strike a deal. And the first question that Rabshakeh asks is, what is the confidence that you have? Why are you confident that you can withstand us? And he kind of goes on to answer his own question here. It says in verse 20, you say, then it says, but these are only empty words. In other words, these are meaningless words, but this is what you're all saying. I have counsel and strength for war. So in other words, Rabshakeh is telling these guys, you're telling yourself that you have enough military might to withstand Assyria. It goes on in verse 20. Now, on whom do you rely? So this is the second question. On whom do you rely that you have rebelled against me? So who is your ally? Who are you making deals with so that you can stand up against Assyria? Verse 21. Now, behold, you rely on the staff of this crushed reed, even on Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will, not go, it will go into his hand and pierce. Now, we already know somewhere right along in here, Sennacherib has defeated the Egyptians. He's already done that just a little bit farther north, um, pretty much into Israel ter- territory, not Judah territory. But he's already defeated um, these Egyptians. And Rabshakeh is saying, look, Egyptians aren't, they're not um, reliable allies anyways. If you lean on them, they're going to stab you. You know, you go, you make an alliance with them, and you're just as likely to be, you know, stuck by them as you are your enemies. And then he goes on in verse 22, but if you say to me, if you say to me, Okay, your first ally that he says is no good is Egypt. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God. So a second ally that he says isn't a faithful ally, reliable ally is going to be the Lord your God. And then he says to these guys, I'm going to paraphrase this a little bit. He says to these guys, he says, isn't, isn't Hezekiah the guy who tore down all the high places where you worship the Lord your God? Isn't he the guy who did that? And the, the implication here is that he, he, Hezekiah has robbed you in some way, has robbed you from being able to worship the Lord uh, your God, and, and he's not for you. Hezekiah is not for you. Verse 23, it says, Now therefore, come, make a bargain with my master, the king of, of Syria, and I will give you 2,000 horses if you're able on your part to set riders on them. So here's the deal. Here's the deal. Assyria is offering Hezekiah um, all the horses he can put men on up to 2,000 horses. Now, 
what you don't see in this part of the deal is that these 2,000 horses were not for riding around Jerusalem. These 2,000 horses most likely would be to go into battle for Assyria. <laughs> so basically the deal is give me 2,000 of your uh, cavalry, you supply the men, I'll supply the horses. That's the deal, and you get to live. That's part of the bargain, too. Verse 24, how then can you repulse one official of the least of my master's servants and rely on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? You, you can't even beat the, the lowest of us Assyrians, and who are these Egyptians? They're worthless soldiers. 25, have I now come up without the Lord's approval? Now, now see what he does. Now Rabshakeh is going to say, the Lord sent me to do this, not the Assyrian king, your, your God. It says, now have I come up without the Lord's approval against this place to destroy it? In other words, I wouldn't come up here unless the Lord sent me. The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. So Rabshakeh speaking for, for Sennacherib is saying, the Lord is the one who sent me here to do this. Why are you resisting the will of the Lord? So uh, we see next in verses 26 and 27, there's a, a request by the Jews uh, to suppress this conversation. It says then, Eliakim, the son of uh, Hilkiah, and Shebna and Joah said to Rabshakeh, Speak now to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it, and do not speak to us in Judean, Hebrew, in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. So they're, they're saying, hey, let's keep it down, keep it down, quit talking so loud, and let's talk in Aramaic, because they don't want the people to understand what's being said. They don't want the people to hear. Verse 27, but Rabshakeh said to them, has my master sent me only to speak to your master and to you to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall, doomed to eat their own dung and drink their own urine with you? In other words, what he's trying to say is we're here not just to talk to you, we're here to talk to all the people and let them know if they do not surrender, there will be a siege, and what happens in a siege is you lose everything and you're reduced to doing despicable things. That's, that's his point. He's trying to intimidate them. This is an intimidation tactic. Verse 28, this did not work, though. This isn't going to work. So then, in verse 28, he starts to really speak to the people, Rabshakeh says, then Rabshakeh stood and cried out with a loud voice in, in Judean, in Hebrew. So he's going to speak in Hebrew with a loud voice. He wants the people to hear him. And he's going to try to undermine Hezekiah's leadership. Verse 29, thus says the king. This is a Syrian king. Don't let Hezekiah deceive you. So Hezekiah is a deceiver. Again, they're trying to undermine his leadership. He's a deceiver. You're not going to be able to stand against us. He's not going to deliver you. Verse 30, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord. The Lord is not going to come to your help. Verse 31, don't listen to Hezekiah. Don't listen to him. He's going to tell you not to make peace with us. But then we see in verse 31, the Assyrians say, you people make your peace with me and come out to me. And here's, here's, he's trying to sweeten the deal here. And eat each of his vine and each of his fig tree and drink each of the waters of his own cisterns. Which is kind of weird. Because when you surrender to the Assyrians, they don't leave you alone. You don't just to go, you don't keep on living like you always did. Verse 32 lets us know about that. You can do all these things until I come and take you away to the land like your own. So you're not going to stay in your land. 
You get to enjoy it until we come back and take you. But the land that we're going to take you to is described here. The land of grain and new wine, land of bread and vineyards, land of olive trees and honey, that you may live and not die. It's almost like a used car salesman. You know, I'm giving you a great deal. Look at all these things, these benefits, these accessories. Then he says at the end of 32, but do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you, saying the Lord will deliver us. Don't let him, don't let him trick you into thinking that. Then he goes on and he says, uh, I'll give you the, the summary to the end of the, of the paragraph here. It is, nobody else's God helped them. Why do you think your God's going to help you? None of these other gods helped their people. Uh, your God is not going to be any different. And then at the end of the chapter, we see that the people didn't say anything. They didn't respond because they were told, don't say anything. Don't respond. And then Eliakim and Shebna and Joah go back and they come to Hezekiah. They're, they're grieving. They're distressed. They're their clothes are torn and they tell him what the Rabshakeh has said. And that brings us into 19. And I just, we'll go back over this next week because we're out of time already. Um, so, but let me preview a little bit of what's happening so you can think about it. Isaiah, uh, this is where Isaiah shows up. Hezekiah has come to the end of the rope, so to speak. His deal with Egypt, for them helping, didn't work. They're, they already got defeated. So he's, you know, he's down to his, his last straw here, and so he says, go get the prophet. Get the prophet to pray to God. Of course, the prophet is Isaiah. Get the prophet to pray to God to see if he will deliver us. And Isaiah comes back and says, the Lord's going to deliver you. He's going he's to cause something that will take Sennacherib out of the land. He will go back the same way he came in. In other words, he's not going to go through your land. He's going to go back the same way he came in. And when he gets back to his land, he's going to die there. Okay, that's, that's the prophecy. Now, you get a little bit later in chapter 19, and the international politics dynamics have changed a little bit. Sennacherib feels a lot more urgency to conquer Jerusalem because he has found out that an army from Cush, which is Ethiopia, is now coming against him. So he needs to reduce Jerusalem so he can face this army from Cush. Um, and so he's really pushing Hezekiah. He's pushing him to surrender. And in doing this, he really blasphemes the Lord. Really blasphemes the Lord. And Hezekiah, in response to this, because now he sees the urgency of Sennacherib, instead of calling for the prophet to pray, Hezekiah himself goes to the temple to pray. And the Lord answers his prayer and then we get a big long thing uh thing get a big long discourse from the lord through isaiah to sennacherib this is the lord speaking to uh sennacherib and of course the end of that chapter is where the 185,000 assyrian soldiers are killed in one night and uh, Sennacherib leaves, he goes home, he gets killed by his two sons. Well, he's got more than two sons, but he made one son really mad. And the, the son that got really mad got a brother, and they went together, and they killed their father. And then the guy, the crown prince, which was the youngest son, he becomes king. And we, we see his name in verse 37. And then as you get into chapter 20, we'll see Hezekiah's illness, um, his foolishness, and his death in verse 20. So that's just a nutshell of, of where we're going with Hezekiah here. So um, two chapters in one night, that's pretty good. That's really good for me.
really good for me. So we'll pick, we'll pick it up here. We'll hit, we'll come back to 19, hit a few details um, that will be key, hit 20, and, and uh, then we'll be on to Manasseh, and then the kings are going to start, kings of Judah will start dropping like flies, okay, as, as we are moving pretty rapidly towards the, the end of the book. I think it's just 25, yeah, 25 chapters. So, you know, we don't have that many more chapters to go, okay? All right, let me pray and we'll be dismissed. Lord, we give you thanks for your goodness to us. Thank you for this time that we've had together. Lord, it's uh, encouraging after we have read about so many kings who were wicked and uh, even kings who weren't wicked, but they could not follow through even on their convictions. Uh, but we see Hezekiah who trusted you, who clung to you, who followed through on his convictions by tearing down the high places and, and the uh, standing stones and the Ashtarah and, and destroying all of those and, and telling the people you need to come to Jerusalem to worship. And so we're thankful for that. We're thankful for how you used him. We're thankful for his uh, reliance upon you and uh, for the example that we have of him in the Bible. Lord, again, we pray for our Ukrainian brothers and sisters. Um, Lord, we know that churches have been destroyed. We know that mission agencies working in the Ukraine have had their uh, facilities damaged and destroyed. And Lord, we just pray for them tonight that you would protect them and that they would stand for you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.